Good morning. How are we? We good? Go ahead and grab your Bibles, flip with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, mark your spot there, and we're going to be in Acts 17 as well. If I've not met you, my name is Travis Cunningham. I'm one of the church planters here getting ready to plant out in the Rancho area. So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 2, and then we're going to work our way back to Acts chapter 17. Uh, so here's what we're going to look at. 1 Thessalonians 2, we're going, to, we're going to see the beginning of a new church in a city called Thessalonica. So last week, Pastor Chris took us through the planting of the church in a city called Philippi. We, we, we saw the Philippian church get planted where Paul would write a letter to the Philippians. And, and we're also going to see this week the planting of a new church in Thessalonica where Paul would go on to write two letters, first and second Thessalonians. And, and so while you're turning there, let me ask you about uh, some events in human history that have so shaped the course of history that, that they will be remembered for a long time. Like if you actually think about it, most events, most people, most inventions, most things that have happened kind of fade away as time passes on. If we remembered everything, our history books would not be this thick. But there are some things that leave such, such a legacy, such an impression that they get remembered. So I was thinking uh, in my own mind this past week about some of those things, and I'll miss some, but, but here's what I thought of. I, I thought of the Protestant Reformation. When guys like Calvin and Luther and Zwingli fought to retain the biblical view of the gospel of salvation in the local church, the Protestant Reformation will be remembered for a long time. I think about the Industrial Revolution, when, when society moved away from kind of being agricultural and rural to being more urban and mechanical. You, you think about D-Day and V-E Day, which completed World War II, finally wiping out the Nazi regime. This war will be remembered more than most wars. Uh, we think about the invention of the internet and new technologies that are just rapidly being developed before our very eyes. I mean, many of us have lived in our cities for a very long time, but do not know how to navigate them apart from Google Maps. And if you use Apple Maps, you're probably getting lost. Shots fired. You think of Martin Luther King and his, his courage to spark and to lead the civil rights movement, which rightly sh shifted the way we look at people, not only here, but across the world, not on the basis of skin color, but based on bearing the image of God. And then you think about, and this is most important, the invention of donuts and the person who paired it with coffee, forever altering my waistline. If anyone knows who invented donuts, shoot me an email, because I'd like to credit him and talk to him in heaven or her if they're there. Um, now, these events share some things in common. Let's talk about that. First, these events so shaped the course of human history, it's sometimes hard to recall what life was like before they happened. I mean, there's no one in this room, and I'm confident of this, there's no one in this room that I could pick up, put in the middle of rural Iowa with no running water, no tools, no electricity, no lights, and say, go survive. No one. Why? because we are so reliant upon machinery and living in urban areas and all the, the, the good things that come with that, that if we got put on the show Survivor, we'd all die. These events also share in common that they change the way we interact with one another in the world around us. I mean, because of Martin Luther King, we now rightly see people, or we should rightly see people. He changed the way we view people here in America. These events also do not allow indifference from, from us. You cannot just passively shrug your shoulders at the internet. The internet demands an active response from you. Otherwise, it's going to lure you into darkness. 
These events, uh, kind of on the, the negative side, here's what they share in common. Most of them were born out of great strife and struggle and conflict and probably even death. And so this morning, what we're going to look at is what happens as a result of the greatest event in human history, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the defining event in human history, and you, you can't argue that. Like, think about it. This very Bible that we're holding is the most reproduced, bought, and read book of all time. Jesus Christ himself is the most discussed and debated person in human history. Like, think about this. One day, Adolf Hitler is going to be forgotten. Jesus Christ never will be. This is the truth. Uh, uh, the very calendar, the way we orient our time and our calendars is about this event. We are near 2019, 2019 years after the resurrection of Jesus. This is the defining event in human history. And what we've seen all throughout the book of Acts is that men and women have responded to the resurrection in faith. They've received the grace of God and they have gone on proclaiming this good news to the ends of the earth over and over and over again. This is what we must do with the resurrection. And we're going to read later on in Acts 17 this insult that's lobbed at the early church <clears throat> that these are the men who turn the world upside down. And this is meant to be an insult, but friends, if that's an insult, may that be an insult of all of us. May we take the resurrection of Jesus and go turn the world upside down by proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And so we must ask, how did these men turn the world upside down? Did they do it through intellect or force or opposition or gaining political power? The answer is no. They went and turned the world upside down by being committed to making disciples to the ends of the earth. That's it. And that nothing has changed there. This is still our mission, Foothill Church. We are still called to go make disciples to the ends of the earth. And so the question for us is, do you, do you desire to make a difference? Do you desire to leave a legacy? Do you desire to have an impact? Do you desire to change the world around you? And I'm hoping you do. I do. I'm hoping you do because God has hardwired you to want to change things. And the only way we can actually do that with an eternal focus is by making disciples in all of life. So the big idea for us today is this. Disciple makers aim to persuade people to follow King Jesus. Disciple makers aim to persuade people to follow King Jesus. So here's how we're going to look at the text this morning. First, we're going to establish that disciples make disciples. This is our calling. And then we're going to look at some traits or attributes of disciple makers, that disciple makers are intentional and thoughtful, and they teach the word, they center on the gospel, they're persuasive, and they endure. Now, if you're counting, that's seven points. I've done an 11-point sermon before, so you guys are getting off easy, and, and yet hopefully you've got a lunch on you so you can kind of sustain yourself for the next few hours. I'm joking. Chill out. Someone's packing up right now, getting ready to take off. Seven points. All right. First point, back on track. Disciples make disciples. First Thessalonians 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 8 together. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is our witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made de demands as apostles of Christ." 
but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now, I don't have all the time to go into the details of this passage, but I want to look at it some, from, some, from some high points. What we have here is Paul kind of retracing the history of what happened when he planted the church in Thessalonica. So what we see from Paul and Silas here is they're trekking on from Philippi into Thessalonica, and, and we're seeing another constant theme that we're seeing all throughout Acts. They're being mistreated, they're being abused, they're being opposed, they're suffering, they're being shamed publicly, but we also see in the midst of much conflict, they are committed to and focused on making disciples. Look back at verse 2 with me. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Down to verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. So Paul and Silas and, and, and the men and women with them, they're in the midst of much conflict, but they stay bold and focused and committed to the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And certainly because they were mere humans, there was probably moments where they got really tired of suffering, right? So, so like we do view Paul, and rightly so at times, as kind of like this warrior who's just going to always survive, and he's pressing on, and, and he's rough, and he's intense, and, that, and that's right in some ways, but he was also human. This was probably times where Paul's just like, gosh, another shipwreck? And now I'm going to get bit by a snake? Like, I'm ready to press the eject button and go back home. I'm, I'm done here. I'm done. And certainly there's moments for all of us in the room where we're just like, I'm ready to press eject and take off. This is too hard. But the reason why Paul and Silas and others could stay committed to the calling to make disciples is because they knew what their calling was and they had counted the cost. And so for those of us in the room who are believers in Jesus, here is your reality. Your calling as a disciple is to go make disciples. You might have other ways to describe yourself. You might be husband, wife, mother, father, grandmother, granddaughter, son, classmate, workmate, dating. You might have all these other ways of describing yourself, but the overarching theme of your life, the overarching call of your life is that as a disciple, your primary calling is to go make disciples. Everything else is subservient to it. And in all of those things, we make disciples. So we are called to make disciples. But when it gets hard, we must remember that we count the cost. Jesus himself calls us to himself and says, before you come to me, count the cost, because coming to me means that you're going to die to self, pick up your cross daily, and it's going to be painful. Like if we actually think about following Jesus, where did the life of Jesus head? It led to death. Following Jesus leads to death of self. So we must count the cost, friends, when we consider our calling to make disciples. Because when it gets hard, we will remember Jesus is worth it. Two, real quick, two ways we can kind of stay committed to our calling to make disciples are found in this text. In verse 2, Paul says, we had boldness in our God. Paul didn't say, I'm, I'm so strong and I'm so powerful and I'm overcoming this. He's saying, no, I'm weak, but my boldness is in God. When I'm weak, he is strong through me. And so when we face pain and, and the cost gets high, what we don't try to do is power up over it, but we submit to King Jesus and let him work through us. 
Uh, another thing that he says is, I didn't work to please man, but to please God. And I didn't seek glory from people, but I sought to glorify God. This has everything to do with where we place our affirmation and our values. If you place your affirmation and your values in pleasing man and glorifying man, all you're going to do is be crippled with the fear of man. Why? Because man's going to reject you. Man's going to shame you. Man's going to place guilt upon you. And it's going to get too costly and you're going to wear out. But if your pleasure and your glory is in God alone, you're going to walk in the freedom Christ has purchased for you. You will not fear rejection. You will not fear shame or guilt. You will not fear man because what God has already said about you and what God has already said is you are my son or my daughter and I am pleased in you. That will sustain you when the cost is high. First point, disciples make disciples. Now flip, flip with me back over to Acts 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 for us. Now when they, that's Paul and Silas, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they had come to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all, all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. Second point, disciple makers are intentional. So one of the phrases you're going to constantly see throughout the book of Acts, you've seen it before, you're going to see it again, is this, as was his custom. So what did Paul do when he went on his missionary and church planting journeys? He had a regular rhythm of going into a city, finding the nearest synagogue, walking into it, building a relationship, teaching the Old Testament, and then proclaiming Jesus Christ from it. This is what Paul did over and over and over again. Paul was not fickle or whimsical with the mission of God, but he was deliberate and intentional with the calling to make disciples. And the problem is we live in an utterly whimsical and fickle age where we're taught we need to be free from authority and we need to just have fun and do whatever we want to do. But God calls his disciples to be intentional in their disciple-making process. And here's the reality that we probably all share in this room. Many of us have customs and rhythms to our lives. All of us, I would say. We all have pretty normal, ordinary, mundane, boring lives. Your Monday looks like last Monday, which will look like next Monday. Every week looks really eerily similar to the next week. Now, the question is, do you see your week through the lens of gospel intentionality? You think Paul ever got tired of going to synagogue after synagogue after synagogue after synagogue? That's ordinary. That's boring. That's mundane. He probably got pretty tired of that. But do you think Paul ever got tired of seeing another person repent and follow Jesus? How could you ever get tired of that? 
So when we find ourselves in our natural rhythms of our calendars, work, rest, play, extracurriculars, vacation, day off here or there, we must see the, 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 the week through the lens of the gospel. And though we may get tired of our normal, ordinary lives, we're all ordinary in this room. When we get tired of that, let us never get tired of seeing God do the extraordinary in the ordinary. So, so a question I always ask is, do you see disciple making as an event you schedule on your calendar or do you see it as a part of every event on your calendar? That changes the way we see everything. We don't schedule disciple making into our lives. It's a part of everything God has already called us to. And this is great news. This is freeing news for everyone in the room, regardless of status, age, life stage, current life scenario. Like I was thinking about several groups of people in the room this morning. I was thinking about my own wife. She's a stay-at-home mom. We have a three and a one-year-old. And that's boring and mundane and hard work. One time I sent her to Nashville for five days I almost died. <laughs> it's hard. But my wife can take heart because one day we are praying we will get to see our kids repent and follow Jesus because of her faithfulness in the ordinary. For the corporate commuters who are sitting in traffic and long drives, and maybe you're working in a, wor in a workplace that you don't really like your cubicle mate and your boss is kind of a jerk and it's just long and hard hours. Take heart. God has placed you there to proclaim the gospel. For the students in the room who are studying, working, trying to pay bills, trying to squeeze in sleep here or there, God has given you a capacity for relationship in this season. You will never get back. Use those relationships to point to Jesus. For the elderly saints, for the new in the faith, God has placed you in specific areas to be his light. He is using you. Do you see your life through the lens of gospel intentionality? I think about one of my first pastors and his wife, Mike and Kim Fleischman. Uh, I was new to the faith. Katie and I were newly married. I was in my first uh, ministry role. We were in a new city up in Portland, and, and he discipled us so well. And here's how he did it. Hey, Tucker has a game. Let's go watch it. Hey, I'm going to drive to South Oregon to to officiate a wedding, come with me. Kim calling Katie saying, hey, I'm going to the grocery store in the nail salon after. Why don't you join me for that? Hey, we have this Christmas party. Why don't you guys come be at, is there anything extraordinary in that? Not a single thing, ordinary life events where he said, come with me and I'm gonna talk to you about Jesus. Let's do it, church. So first, as disciples, we make disciples. One step in the process of making disciples is intentionality. Another step, disciple makers are thoughtful. Look back to verses two and three. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Reasoning, explaining, proving. We have three verbs here that show Paul did not leave logic at the door in the process of making disciples. Paul was deliberate and thoughtful in the way he made disciples. Recently, I was listening to a podcast with a philosopher named Oz Guinness. Anyone ever heard of him? Oz Guinness? A couple people. So here's Oz Guinness. He's brilliant. I mean, he was born and raised in the UK. He's actually a descendant of the Guinness Brewery family, so we have a lot to thank them for. Um, sarcasm. Come on. You can hang with me, right? You, you guys are getting to know me still, so we're having fun, okay? Um, so Oz Guinness is... Uh, He's brilliant. Born and raised in the UK, grew up on the missionary field in China. Uh, now he's 
finishing up his race in Washington, D.C. by engaging the political community through a distinctly Christian perspective. And as he spent his kind of final years in D.C., what, what he's seen is kind of culture eroding in America all around him and then seeing the church decrease around him. And, and he's drawing a parallel in one area. He's lamenting this too. He's saying one of, the, one of the things that's contributing to both of this cultural erosion and churches decreasing is the lack of logic in the American church. And he's pointing the finger directly at preachers and he's saying, you're not making God's thoughts known to people. You're being a, a mascot or a hype man. It's like, man, that's a rebuke. And here's the deal. It's true. In the American church, we have this propensity to leave logic out in the making of disciples as if we don't possess the answers. And what I'm not saying and what Oz Guinness is not advocating for is that we become eggheads or like puffed up with knowledge because knowledge never puffs up. But, but what he is saying is that we have a faith that is reasonable and logical and we can explain it. We have a knowable God who has made himself knowable to us and to others. And so we must take the questions that culture is asking us and answer them from a perspective that is logical and thoughtful. I mean, I think about Paul. He's going into these synagogues and he's reasoning with these Jews and they're probably asking really good questions of him. They're, they're probably asking how can I know that, that this Jesus is the son of man prophesied about in the Old Testament? How can I know that this Jesus is the Messiah? How can I know that this Jesus is the way to eternal life? And you think Paul just kind of dismissed those questions like, well, you'll figure that out. There's no way. And what we must recognize is culture all around us is asking really good questions. Questions like, how can I know God is real? How can I know that Jesus is alive? How can I know that there's not just one path, but a ton of paths to salvation? How can I know that God will accept me despite my lifestyle or despite the way I used to live? These are good questions. And we must thoughtfully engage these questions and we must answer these questions. So the question for us then is, have we honestly engaged with these questions and wrestled them to the ground? We're not without answers. We have answers and we can reason and logically explain the answers to these really good questions. And the truth is sometimes that is what God uses to pe bring people unto himself. The reasonable explanation of the faith that we possess. Next point, disciple makers teach the word. Back to verse two. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. See that phrase there, from the scriptures. So the question is, okay, I have this reasonable and logical faith. What do I reason from? What do I reason with? The scriptures. Disciple makers teach the word. This right here is where we find all the answers. This right here tells the great redemptive story of God. This right here tells of King Jesus. It reveals him in all things. This right here proves the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This right here tells us of the existence and the goodness and greatness of God. We are lost without the scriptures. So as people ask us questions, let us reasonably and logically explain the answers from this text. This friend, believer, is one of your most precious possessions. This omnipotent, transcendent God has condescended and made himself known to us. How can we possibly let this collect dust? How can we possibly let this collect dust when God has made himself known to us? So we must know it and love it and learn it and live it and give this away to others. I know what you're asking because I ask myself this question. It, isn't salvation by faith, not by reason? 
And the answer to that is absolutely yes, but faith and reason are not in conflict. They are complementary to each other. Listen to Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So biblical faith is not mere wishful thinking. Biblical faith is not blind. Biblical faith is not belief without warrant. Biblical faith is believing in something we do not yet see, but having deep conviction there is reason for that belief. Biblical faith, uh, you could not be assured of your faith apart from good biblical reasoning, which is why we must know this, search this, get the answers, cling to the answers, and give this away to others. If we give people God's word, we give them life. If we give them man's opinion, we give them death. You understand that, right? If you're giving your friends and family who are asking about Jesus, God's word, you're giving them life. But if you're giving them your opinion on culture, you're giving them death. I often get asked, oh, you're going back from people in Texas, right? They don't understand California. <laughs> you're going back to California, it's so hard. How are you gonna be relevant? I don't care about being relevant. I care about preaching this. Jesus Christ doesn't need me to make him relevant. He just needs me to talk about him. Teach the word. Fifth point, hang in there, we're moving, okay? Disciple makers are centered on the gospel. Back to verse three. Paul's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Do you see Paul making a beeline to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as he teaches from the scriptures? Why does Paul do that? Paul does that because he knows that our hope is not in some ink spilled on a page, but, a, but our hope is in a savior who spilled his blood in our place. That's where our hope is, friends. And so Paul knows that the logical reasoning from all scripture culminates and finds its peak in Jesus Christ. Paul knows that every, answer, every question must be answered with the rule and the reign of King Jesus. Paul knows that all of scripture is about Jesus, so he's going to talk about Jesus and center on Jesus. It is the gospel of God that is the power unto salvation, and the gospel is all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when teaching the word, we too, friends, must make a beeline to Jesus. Jesus himself would command us to do this in Luke chapter 24. Verses 44 and 45. Then he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Do you, do you hear it there from Jesus? Everything in this scripture is about me. So if Jesus is saying the scriptures are about him, I'm willing to bet the scriptures are about him. So let's center our lives on the gospel Let's make disciples by proclaiming the gospel. So do you know the gospel? Do you truly know the gospel? Do you know the fact that God is the creator of the world and everything in it, including you and me, and that when he created us, he created us to have perfect harmony with him and with each other. Adam and Eve were created to have perfect relationship with him and each other, and he gave them order over all other creation. But then the evil one would come into the garden and tempt Adam and Eve to eat of the tree, and they would succumb to that temptation. And at that moment, they would introduce sin into the world, and it would fracture 
enter everything. And as their descendants, we have participated in this sin as well. And God, because he is holy and righteous and just, must, must punish sin and disobedience. And instead of punishing us, he would send his only son into the world who would take on human flesh and become the man, Jesus Christ, who would live the perfect life that is demanded of us. And he would be perfectly obedient to the point of death on a cross where he would become our sin and, and God would pour out his wrath on, on Jesus Christ. And then Jesus would lay in a grave that we dug for him. But on the third day, the father, by the power of the spirit, would resurrect Jesus Christ to new life, thereby defeating sin, death, and the devil. And that we, through mere repentance, turning away from our old life and placing our faith in Jesus, can have his righteousness and no longer be seen as sinners. This is the gospel. Do you know that? Do you know that? My friend up in the Northwest, a man named Jeff Vanderstelt, wrote a book called Gospel Fluency. And the concept of this book is, say I'm a native English speaker, and I want to go become fluent in Spanish. Here's a marker of fluency. It's not when I uh, can translate some terms and verbs in, from English into Spanish, or when I can get by in Mexico with some Spanglish. That's not fluency. Fluency is when I begin to think and act and dream and see the world through Spanish terms, not English terms. Now, he's saying the same thing is true of gospel fluency, that we must become, as believers, fluent in the gospel where we think and act and dream and see the world through the lens of gospel terms. And when we're interacting with those who are far off from Jesus, we engage them with gospel terms. We must become fluent in the gospel. So live in the gospel, meditate on the gospel, feast on the gospel. Sixth, disciple makers are persuasive. Verse four, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Translation, many people followed Jesus. Many people were persuaded to follow Jesus. And this is our aim. Like make no bones about it. Our goal in life is not just to say the gospel and, and just like let it be out there. Our goal in disciple making is to persuade people to follow Jesus. That is our goal. And so recently I, I heard of... Uh, a study that was done of kind of millennial Christians, and they asked them, okay, do you know your mission as believers? Oh, yes, my, my mission is to go into all the world and make disciples. Do you know the means by which you make disciples? Yeah, it's the gospel. I, I know that. But is it offensive to call people to repentance? Well, yeah, that's offensive, so I'm not going to do that. That's a broken understanding of evangelism. If we understand disciple-making correctly, we know that our mission is to go into all the world and make disciples, and we have the means by which to do it, but the gospel is incomplete if you do not call your friends or family to repent. Jesus himself would say, repent or perish. And so we must attempt and aim to persuade people to follow Jesus, and that's not offensive. That's what we're called to do. So how do we become persuasive? Get out of the way. Jesus does not need a slick used car salesman. Jesus will sell himself. One of my former professors says it this way, and use your divine imaginations with me. Imagine God is this divine chef, and he, perform, or he, 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 he cooks this perfect meal called the gospel, and sitting out at the tables is a lost and dying world who need this meal and are hungry for this meal. We, our role as believers is to be the servers who go into the kitchen, grab the meal, and drop it at the tables, and try not to mess it up along the way. That's persuasiveness. Just get out of the way. 
open your lips and get out of the way. I think one of my friends, Rob Daniels, he so loves Jesus and he, he, he experiences Jesus's love so much and he's been so affected by the gospel that he is just winsome and joyful and humble and kind in his, in, 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 in his ability to, to make disciples. Why? Because he actually believes that he possesses the greatest, most satisfying, most freeing news in all of the universe. So Foothill Church, do you actually believe that? When you hear the gospel, do you believe that's it? That's what life is about. That's where satisfaction is found. That's where joy is. And then does your behavior reflect that reality? God will do the persuading. We must just graciously open our lips. Disciple makers are persuasive. Final point, disciple makers endure. Look back to verses five through nine with me. But the Jews were jealous, and taking, some of, uh, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. It happens again. Jason gets beat. There's a, a mob. There's an uproar. There's abuse. There's opposition. They rob him and his friends of their money, and, the, and then they let them go. One thing that we see, though, in those verses is simple endurance simple faithfulness, simple perseverance from Jason and from Paul and Silas. What you don't see is them kind of powering up and trying to defeat the opposition. You don't see them uh, pulling the ripcord and taking off. What you see them is enduring the beating. Simple endurance. Why? Because they believed the scriptures. They believed that vengeance is the Lord's, not theirs. They believed that the unfading crown of glory that they would receive one day in heaven far outweighs any light and momentary affliction they would face here on earth. They believe that God is going to complete what he has started. They believe that God is working all things together for their good. These men actually believe that about God. So in the middle of it, they endured. And disciple makers endure. And many of us are going to face opposition. It's not going to be the persecution that our brothers and sisters in China or North Korea or Iran face. It's not going to be that. But what we are going to face is probably rejection or passive-aggressive comments or, or shame or guilt. Maybe you'll lose a job over it. And that, that's hard. But in the midst of it, we must endure. And one way we can endure is by trusting in King Jesus. Did you see it in the text there that the men gladly disobeyed the decrees of Caesar because those are worldly decrees and they submitted themselves gladly to the, the decrees of another king named Jesus. And what they believed about Jesus is that all of his decrees are good and right and wise and perfect. And so they would follow him. Here's something you've heard from this pulpit over and over again. I hope you never get tired of hearing it. Chris has said it, JD, Stephen, nothing bad can befall you apart from first passing through the throne of grace. Nothing bad can come your way unless it passes through Jesus first. Do you understand that? And do you believe that? When you're in hard times, do you accept that? And do you endure in the midst of it? Or do you shake your fist at God? You're wrong you're evil, or do you endure? Because if you see Jesus rightly, if you see his decrees rightly, you will endure, and God will keep you to the end. 
and your faith and your trust and your hope will be in him and disciples will be made as a result of it. Your witness will be enhanced in the world as you endure through the pain of life. Do you understand that one of the primary means God uses to draw people to himself is other people's suffering? That's hard. God's using my pain to give him glory and when others see that, they want, want God because I'm satisfied in him, not in my circumstance. So we endure by trusting in our King Jesus. So let me close by the, like this. In this text, we see, we see these men going on and planting another church. And we hear this said over them. These are the men who have turned the world upside down. And many of us, I said it at the start, have that yearning within us. I do. Like I did not move back here to go plant a church in Rancho just for it to stay the same. You are not here this morning because you want to see Glendora and San Dimas and Azusa stay the same. We do not give away of our resources to plant churches across Ireland and Paris and to the ends of the earth because we want those areas to stay the same. We are doing that because we are committed to seeing our region turned upside down by the gospel. And so what are the means by which we can do that? Does it come by, by building big castles and fame and fortune unto ourselves? Uh, maybe God will use those things through you. I pray that he does. And if he's given you those things, I pray you use those for his glory. But friends, all of those things, if we're aiming at those things in life, those are temporary and they're gonna fade. But if we're aiming at making new disciples, that's where the eternal is found. One day worshiping with people who right now, right in this second are off sinning against the Lord, but he's going to draw to himself and we're going to worship with them forever. That's eternal. That's legacy. That's impact. That's turning the world upside down. And I want to see it happen. And we Foothill Church can do it. If we team up together and we faithfully go into all the world making disciples and using our life to aim to persuade people to follow Jesus. And, and we do it through the thoughtful teaching of God's world while making a beeline to Jesus in all things, living out the gospel, declaring and demonstrating the gospel. We can do this and the world will be turned upside down because of it. Or better yet, it's probably better said this way. The world will be turned right side up because of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you made us your disciples, that we once were orphans, now we're sons and daughters. We once were dead in our sins and trespasses. We are now alive forever with Christ. We were once a part of the kingdom of darkness, and we are now a part of the kingdom of your beloved son. We did not earn that. We did not merit that. We did not grab after that. We did not make that happen in our own lives. That happened because of you and your graciousness to us. And so I pray, God, we would not hoard that good news to ourselves, but we would be stung by grace, giving it away to everyone we come in contact with, and that more will be added to your kingdom as a result of it. Use us, God, to be persuasive, to be winsome, to endure, to teach the word, to live out the gospel. Use us to reveal Jesus to Glendora and to the ends of the earth. We pray these things not for our sake, but for your glory and your name and your fame. In Christ's name. Amen.